Daniel chapter 3. The more that I study the book of Daniel, the more I realize that it's kind of a, it's kind of a story. Daniel is giving us a chronology, almost like a journal, abbreviated, of his experiences in the land of Babylon. And so he kind of tells us uh, in sequence the kinds of things that have happened uh, since he's been there. And you recall that um, last week we looked at chapter 2 where Nebuchadnezzar had had a, a remarkable dream, a dream that terrified him, and he wanted answers. He wanted someone to interpret the dream for him. Now, a question was asked, and I'm going to go back to chapter 2 just for a moment and and try to answer that for you. It's a long chapter, but look at verse 5 of chapter 2 for just a moment. There we go. Where it says, the king replied to the Chaldeans, the command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. Well, if the king was terrified, (laughs) guess who else is terrified now? And uh, he wanted them to tell him not only the interpretation of the dream, but to tell him what he dreamt. And... Therein uh, lies the problem. I was going on the basis of some literal translations from Hebrew uh, in the commentaries and uh, failed to follow up with the reading in the New American Standard Bible. And so the question was asked me last week, where did you get the idea that the king forgot his dream? Where did that come from? And what's interesting is every commentator spends a couple of pages talking about it. And I went back and read the New American Standard and I couldn't find it. And I thought, well, that's an interesting turn of events. Except the translation of verse 5 is where the uh, conundrum lies. The king replied to the Chaldeans, the command from me is firm. Now, some of the translations say, the word has gone out from me. In other words, I've made a decree. Another way to translate the Hebrew there, and the way the authorized version does so, and the way the commentators who translated from the Hebrew were doing it was, the thing has gone away from me. Meaning, not the commandment, but the dream. In other words, I forgot it. (laughs) It went away from me. And so you have to tell me the dream, as well as the interpretation. Every once in a while you run into these kinds of things, and uh, I wanted to go back and let you know where that came from. 
And uh, as you go through the chapter, it appears that what the king is doing is he is um, either he's forgotten the details or he is testing the Chaldeans and the other magicians and astrologers and whatever to explain to him the dream that he had, which he would recognize, so that he would know if their interpretation was valid. And, and you recall we went over that in quite some detail. Well, as he sees this um, huge statue in his dream, Daniel, who provides the interpretation, says to him, that the head, this is the dream statue, the head is of gold, and that represents your kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, but after you will come another kingdom, and that went into the silver, and then it went into the bronze, and then it went into the iron, and if you recall, each one of those different metals uh, represented a different um kingdom that would follow in succession. And so Nebuchadnezzar awards Daniel and he awards his uh, three uh, compatriots and um, they get all the gifts and blessings that he had promised. And uh, for for the time being, he's satisfied. But I think he started thinking about it. And if you recall the end of the dream a stone comes out of the mountain and lands on the toes and feet of the statue in the dream and crushes them because they're made of iron and clay. It's a mixture that doesn't mix. And then the whole statue turns to dust and is blown away. And the stone becomes the origin of a new kingdom that will last forever. This is the stone that the builders rejected. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Nebuchadnezzar gets to thinking about this whole thing. And I don't think he liked the idea that there would be kingdoms after him. And I don't think he liked the idea that there would be this God that would destroy all of them and establish an eternal kingdom. And so, he decides that he's going to make a statue that will be all of gold. And that that statue will represent his kingdom from head to toe. And it will stand firmly forever. Now, a lot of critics, and any time you read these Old Testament books, you, you encounter critics who uh, want to um, put a lie to the books and, and uh, sort of point out mistakes that they've made and, and uh, create doubt about the Scripture. And many have complained, saying, This statue, which is 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, could not have been solid gold because there wasn't that much gold in the whole Middle East. 
And so uh, they complained about that. Well, the fact is that other extra-biblical sources, as well as Isaiah, indicate that many of these kinds of things were simply covered with gold. In other words, there was a stone kind of base uh, or foundation that was the actual sculpture, and then they covered it with gold. And I wondered, well, how much gold would it take to cover a statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide? And um, I did a little bit of math, uh, which I'm sure some of you will correct later. But uh, anyway, um, you can take one ounce of gold... Gold is an interesting metal. You can beat it pretty thin, and it will still stay together. In fact, you, you can beat it down almost to a cellular level, and it will stay together. You can take one ounce of gold and beat it down to a, a sheet that is point. 18 microns. Anybody know what a micron is? It's one thousandth of a millimeter. In fact, you can take 7,000 sheets that thick or that thin and lay them on top of one another and they will not be any thicker than a dime. So, you think about that. You can take 7,000 sheets and they will cover, each sheet will cover 9 square meters. That's pretty thin and yet it's solid gold. And uh, so you could take, uh, I kind of derived this down um, to about uh, 10 ounces of gold would cover this figure if you beat it that thin. Well, they had more than that. They, they could make it a little thicker. And so the statue was probably not solid gold, but it was a golden statue. And standing out on the plains, can you imagine when the sun hit that? There's, there are no trees to, to shade it. There's nothing to get in the way. It's 90 feet tall, and it's out on this plain, the plain of Dura. And when the sun came up, my goodness, that it, you'd have to have sunglasses to look at it. It would be so amazing. And the other thing that was interesting to me about the plain of Dura is if you look at the Tigris and Euphrates River, uh, they, they maintain kind of like a parallel course, but just north uh, west of Babylon, they sort of come together and then they move out again. And in that narrow place, and that's relatively speaking narrow, northwest of Babylon was where Nebuchadnezzar had this statue placed. And interestingly, that is about the same location as best we can determine where the, the Tower of Babel was built. 
And that strikes me as kind of a prophetic uh, focal point that when people first decided to build the Tower of Babel, their purpose was to unify, to stay together, and to triumph over God. And now this statue is a statue to honor Babylon in triumph over all the other gods. And I suspect that in the future uh, kingdom of Antichrist, it will be in that region that the the kingdom of Antichrist will be uh, centered or focused. And so the new Babylon, the Babylon to come, is probably going to be in the same place. And uh, it will, in fact, um, follow that pattern, triumphing or attempting to triumph uh, over God. So, uh, Nebuchadnezzar builds this thing in his honor. Now, it isn't necessarily a statue of him. It could be a statue of his god, Nebo, that was the chief god of Babylon, or it could have some similarity to Nebuchadnezzar. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what the statue looked like. But it was to unify all of the conquering peoples of Babylon under one central focal God. How quickly we forget. Nebuchadnezzar has recognized the God of Daniel and has honored him as the one true God that can interpret dreams. Now, he's forgotten all about that. And he wants to unify people under this false God. And that also uh, reminds me about the nature of, of uh, leadership um, in terms of people that acquire power. You recall the saying that says power corrupts and ultimately an ultimate power corrupts ultimately. There is an aspect of human nature that the more power we get, the more of a sense of personal entitlement we develop. It takes a very special person to be in charge and remain humble. Because all of a sudden we think we deserve the servants and the, and the planes and the limos and the bodyguards and the, the gold and the silver and, and the china and the crystal and all the things that go with the trappings of world leadership. Uh, we, we feel that we're entitled to that, that it belongs to us as, as the leaders. And Nebuchadnezzar is no different. In fact, he is almost a megalomaniac in terms of his uh, self-aggrandizement as a leader, feeling that he is entitled to dominate everything and that everyone needs to bow uh, and do homage to him and to his kingdom because he has achieved this greatness. 
And he has forgotten that God has allowed him to overrun Jerusalem. God has allowed him to be the instrument of punishment for their idolatry. And now he's becoming an idol. And so, Nebuchadnezzar is seeking to exalt himself into a position of great um, honor and privilege that everyone will be will bow down to. Now, he gets this statue built. He sets it up in the plains of Dura. He gets all the musicians together. And, and by the way, the, the Babylonians um, were very fond of music. In their drawings and depictions, they always show musical instruments. Uh, they were fond of music. They had trumpets. They had flutes. They had stringed instruments. They had percussion. They had all kinds of music. I, I, I wonder what that sounded like. I, I don't think it was noise. I, I think there was some kind of uh, beauty to their music, um, at least a musicality to it that made sense. And his decree was that every time all the musicians would play, and probably he had some composers write a special kind of fanfare or some other kind of special tune, because probably you wouldn't be falling on your face every time you turned on the CD player, you know. But, um, you know, I'm kidding. But uh, nonetheless, there was some special music that would be played and everyone was to fall down. And he names all of the ranks of the governors and leaders and sheriffs and satraps and all of these people that are supposed to be represented at the day of dedication. And they're all assembled out there on the plains of Dura and the music sounds and everybody falls on their face. Guess who's standing out in the crowd? Literally. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are still standing. And the Chaldeans can't help but notice. Now, gratitude mixed with pride, runs thin. Do you remember the Chaldeans were the ones that were going to be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to rubble? And Daniel says, don't do that, king. I'll explain the dream. And he saves their lives. Wouldn't you think that they would be grateful that their lives had been spared? No, they're not grateful. As soon as they see these three Hebrew leaders and they are appointed over provinces in Babylon, they wanted those positions and they see now's our chance to get rid of them. These are the ones that saved their lives. And they're going to have them brought up before the king to be thrown in the fiery furnace, because that was the king's edict. Whoever does not bow down and worship with their face to the ground is going to be thrown in the furnace. 
Now, the king knows Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He knows them. Um, He knows who they are. He has appointed them as provincial governors of the regions around Babylon. And I think this kind of made him sad. It, It made him angry and made him sad. Have you ever had those feelings mixed together? You know, you have someone you love, someone you like. They've blatantly and flagrantly violated your command. You've got to deal with it, but you don't want to. You want to give them a chance. And so the king says, bring them here to me. And so they come into the king's presence, and he says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what's this I hear about you? I understand you didn't bow to the image that I set up, and you have dishonored the image, in essence. And he says, I'm going to give you another chance. I'm going to let you have an opportunity right now. We're going to play the music again. And I'm going to have you bow right now and fix this problem, because otherwise... I'm going to have to carry out my edict and throw you in the furnace. And they say to him something that infuriates him. They say, King, there's no point in a do-over. Does not matter. Whether we live, whether we die, our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, It makes no difference to us. We are not going to worship a false god. We are not going to bow down to the image. We're going to honor the Lord our God and remain true to Him no matter what you do to us. How many of you feel in the face of that kind of challenge would have the courage of these three men to stand against it? They were standing apparently in the uh, way things were laid out there before the king, but this furnace is over here and it's hot. They can feel the heat. And if they defy the king, that's where they're headed. Can can you imagine the courage that it took to make that statement? And it was not contingent upon God's deliverance of them. They did not know what was going to happen. They knew God could deliver them. And I think one of the reasons that they knew that, um, I want to look at Isaiah 43 here for a moment. Um, Back a few books. Isaiah chapter 43, um, starting in verse 1. 
But now thus says the Lord your Creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel. By the way, they had this writing because Isaiah was a hundred or more years before, a couple hundred years before Daniel. He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior." I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place, since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east. And gather you from the west and say to the north, give them up and from the, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. I am quite sure that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew this passage of scripture quite well. And the reason that I'm confident of that is because it promises the restoration of Israel. It promises that God will bring them out of captivity and restore them to the promised land. And that would have been natural for captives in Babylon who were true to God to cherish and hold on to. And so in that, they knew that God was able to deliver them when they walked through the fire, they wouldn't be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. They knew that was God's promise. But they also knew that He had not made it personally to them. And so their attitude was, God is able to deliver He can do it. But whether or not He does it is immaterial. We will honor Him. We will obey Him. We will magnify Him. And we will not serve or bow to other gods. The passage of Scripture that John read for you from Exodus You shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And idolatry is the the greatest, um, most despicable breaking of the Ten Commandments. And so they weren't about to do it. And so as a consequence... The king says, what God is there that can deliver you? That'll never happen. And he was so furious, he said, make that furnace seven times hotter. Now, I don't know how they measured that. 
it may have just been a, a symbolic number. Make it as hot as you can possibly make it. The, the number seven means complete or perfect. In other words, get that furnace going as hot as it can be. And, and people who have studied the construction of this, uh, you know, I've thought about this a lot and said, how in the world did they, did they put this thing together? But people who have studied the construction of it say that there were pipes that went uh, in underneath a grating. And the fire was on top, and there were men who um, pulled these huge bellows and blew the air under to get that fire as hot as it could get. And uh, so they made it as hot as they could make it. And the king ordered that his guard take up these three men and throw them in. The fire was so hot that by the time they got to the top where they were going to throw them over into the furnace, the heat coming out of the top burned them up. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bound by cords and ropes in their clothing and garments were tossed into it and there must have been some kind of opening uh, that they could see through uh, in the side, whether it was a huge furnace, um, and you could see into it without the flames coming out of it. Imagine something maybe the size of this room that was rounded, and only in the middle, maybe 10 feet wide, was the fire, and there, and yet the whole thing was glowing red because of the heat. I accidentally one night packed our wood stove in Tennessee too full of hardwood. And um, I'll never forget, in the middle of the night, I smelled this funny smell. And uh, I went upstairs into the attic, which was open to us. And I looked at the flue pipe, and it was cherry red. And I realized, I have a problem. <laughs> I can't open the door to the, to the firebox because I'm going to have a chimney fire. And I don't know how to get this thing to cool down. So I closed off all the air to the firebox and I went back upstairs and I started to throw water little by little on the flue until it started to look like metal again <laughs> instead of a glowing torch and uh, wow that was uh, that was pretty hot and I can imagine here's this fire in the middle but everything is cherry red and 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 so hot and the king looks in there and he's incredulous. He says to the other people around the throne, didn't we throw three bound men in the furnace? Was I mistaken? Wasn't it three? Yes. There's four in there. And the fourth one looks like one of the sons of the gods. What is going on? 
and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are walking around in there as if they're out for a Sunday afternoon stroll. And he goes to the opening and he says, come out of there. And they come out and, you know, I can just imagine them going, They don't smell like smoke. You know how you can't get near a fire without going away with your clothes smelling smoky? They didn't smell like smoke. Their bonds were loosed. They burned off, but not their sleeves and not their robes and their garments. They were perfectly unscathed. They weren't even sunburned. And... The king is amazed. And all of a sudden he realizes there is a God who can deliver. There's a God in heaven who is greater than all the gods of Babylon. Now, one of the things that stands out to me in this is that his challenge was not to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. His challenge was to Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. He was challenging him. What God is there that can deliver you? And God, in essence, says, I'll show you. And they were unscathed by that at all. The other thing that is quite outstanding in this passage is that the fourth person who appeared to Nebuchadnezzar like one of the sons of the gods actually was the son of God. It was Jesus. It was absolutely Jesus. God the Son has existed eternally with the Father and with the Spirit. A recent poll was done by Lifeway and it was uh, among church attenders, many of whom do not believe Jesus existed before Bethlehem, many of whom believe the Holy Spirit is a force, not a person. I'm talking about people who attend a church like ours. They're all goofed up in their theology. But here is Jesus appearing with these three men, walking in this furnace, protecting them, covering them, guarding them, until the moment they walk out of it in front of the king and he vanishes from sight. But this is an example of Jesus in his pre-Bethlehem incarnation appearing as a man in front of whomever. that You look through the Old Testament and you find a number of occasions where he has appeared. You know, not everyone is delivered. We, we need to recognize that. There is a crown and a victory for martyrs. And there are many who are martyred 
last year, 2017, alone more than 150,000 believers worldwide were killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. When Stephen proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ in the book of Acts, chapter 7, he testified to the glory of God and the deity and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the Jews were so angry with him, they took him out to stone him. And the scripture says his face glowed as he looked up into the heavens and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Friends, what did Jesus do when he rose to his father's side? He sat down. He was seated. But what did he do when Stephen was being martyred? He stood to receive him. Isn't that amazing that the Son of God would stand to honor one of his own because of his love for them and his blessing that they were willing to give their lives for their testimony. Whether we live or whether we die, Jesus says, I will be with you. I will go with you through the furnace and the waters, whatever. I will see you through all the way to the end. Um, How much are you called on today to sacrifice for your faith? What does it cost you? A little bit of ridicule. Maybe some strange looks. Maybe some embarrassment now and then. What did it cost the great heroes of the faith and heroines of the faith? What did it cost? Their very lives. We have so little to deal with. I remember the story of one Arab young lady who came to faith in Christ through a radio broadcast and she began to read her Bible. And her family hated her for it. They rejected her. They basically locked her in her room and wouldn't let her out. And then the day came when her own brothers and her own family took her out in the front yard, put tires over her body, poured gasoline, and burned her alive for her faith in Jesus Christ. Our price is so very small. I wonder if we're willing to be courageous in the very little that we have to contend with. Father, I pray this morning that you would 
remind us of these great men and women of faith who have given their very lives to follow you. And today, each year, there are more martyrs who die for their faith in you, Lord Jesus, than have ever died in the course of the history of the church. Every year, there are more. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our faith, that we would become men and women of courage, that we would be unashamed of our Lord and Master, that we would speak our testimony with conviction and confidence. And whether you deliver us or whether we pay a price, that we would honor you, because we know the day will come The trumpet will sound, the dead in Christ will be raised, and those of us who are alive will be caught up together with them to meet you in the air, and so will we ever be with you. And for all eternity, we will live in praise and peace in your presence. What can human beings do to us here and now compared to all the glory Paul said I am persuaded that the sufferings of this present age are not to be compared to the glory that is to follow and so Lord May we, by your grace and the enablement of your Spirit, be worthy of that glory. In Jesus' name, amen.